Support for Faith on Trial and Iowa Catholic Radio provided in part by Imogene Ingredients. Our freedom of conscience and religion is being challenged by laws and regulations imposed by secular society. It's time to hear from the top Christian litigators in the nation who have come forward to tell us the truth and help us defend our faith. Hear ye, hear ye. All rise. Faith on Trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Mano is in session. And welcome once again to Faith on Trial. I'm Deacon Mike Mano, your host with Gina Noel in our network studios in West Des Moines. Gina, how are you today? I am well. Looking forward to the beginning of Advent this weekend. That's right. I'm, I I thought it was last weekend. It was, went to church, all ready for it. I should have looked at a calendar. Usually it comes right after Thanksgiving, but the calendar So does that mean it's different. late this year? Uh, yeah. on, well, it's not late because Christmas is a defined dated holiday, 25th. It feels late, but okay. It was, it was Thanksgiving that was... I guess early, maybe? early, yeah. Okay, that, that's the way I would look at it. Okay, anyway. all right. So, ha- happy beginning of Advent. Yes, as, it starts. As the show uh, broadcast will be right on the heels of right, it. right. Last day in ordinary time, and then the next day we're in Advent. Already. That's right. Yeah. So the weekend, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. My favorite time of the year, and we even got a little snow this week. So I am happy camper. Well, you're happier than Luann was. Yeah, you're right. Your yeah. wife, she yes. doesn't particularly care for the snow. She doesn't like bundling up in the car, you know, putting mm. on heavy coats and all that. My daughter was home from Florida, and she said, "I can't wait to get back." She goes, <laughs> "I hate like going from twenty degrees outside and then into this hot, you know, air in the car." And yeah. I said, well, the same thing happens in Florida with the air conditioning. I don't know what you're talking about. It's hot outside of the car and well, freezing one, inside. One car. thing I like is the change of seasons. I enjoy the change I of do seasons. Too. I couldn't take summer all year round, couldn't take winter all year okay. round, or s- spring or fall for that matter. Deacon Mike, the bugs are dead. I love mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You know, the air is crisp. Um it, you you get kind of in a survival mode, so you're you know you're you're more you're you're not as carefree or laid back. I, it's my favorite time of the year, okay, and well, I'm glad it's finally snowed. Yeah, well, we've had our our snow. I remember a couple of years ago though, where there was snow, big heavy snowstorm before Thanksgiving, because we, where we live, our driveway tends to drift, and I remember it was drifted up to my shoulders, and this was before Thanksgiving. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that doesn't w- happen much anymore. That does not. That does not. All well, right. Well, we have a show this yes, week. Yes, we do. Jonathan Butcher, from who is a senior fellow in education at the Heritage Foundation, is going to talk to us about what is going on with DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and uh, how it is uh, a Apparently, in some quarters, anyway, starting to lose uh, interest in it. I think the public is finally getting a little I tired of some of the too. extreme uh, features of, of that particular philosophy or ideology. Yeah. You know, in essence, it sounds good. Again, it's that whole argument that the language we use is not necessarily what we mean, descriptive mm-hmm. of what we actually are mm-hmm. intending. Yeah, and we have to remember. Equity is not equality. That's right. It's different. Well, like different. Bishop Barron says, in the Catholic Church, we re- we believe in DES, um, dignity, equality, and subsidiarity. Yeah. And I, I'm all and, in on that one. And that's right. And that's right. Uh, and then we have Jacob Reed, who is a legal counsel with the Center for Christian Ministries with the Alliance Defending Freedom. And there's a very disturbing case in uh, Vermont right now about a private school, religious school, that is being uh, shut out of a tuition program that the state has because of uh, its teachings or its beliefs in uh, the sexual identity of men and women. Uh, And then it's also kicked the sports team out of the uh, local leagues that they can play in. 
That's right. And, well, their, and their funding was taken away by the state's uh, school choice yeah, or yeah. however their program works, so, which is very odd because I remember, didn't, haven't we had a number of cases? that we, Well, we had one from Maine, very okay. similar, went up to the Supreme Court. That's right. It was the Supreme, Supreme Court, Court rang the bell on that one, and apparently Vermont didn't hear that ringing. So it'll be interesting. They're doing the same thing. They're well, doing the same thing, yeah. It'll be good to get an update from uh, John, or, yeah, Jacob. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. That's right. All right, do you have a prayer to open us up with? I do. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God of peace, bring your peace to our violent world. Peace in the hearts of all men and women, and peace among the nations of this earth. Turn to your way of, turn to your way of love, those, hearts, those whose hearts and minds are consumed with hatred. Strengthen us all in hope, and give us the wisdom and courage to work tirelessly for a world where true peace and love reign among the nations and in the hearts of all. Amen. Amen, and especially peace in Israel right now. Amen. All right, uh, we will be back right after these messages with Jonathan Butcher from the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. And we're back. You're still listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. And we have with us right now Jonathan Butcher, who is a senior research fellow in education for the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and Jonathan, welcome to the program. I don't think we've had you on before, but uh, we will treat you kindly. First, first time guest, we always try and treat kindly. <laughs> no, thank you. Great so, to be with you. <laughs> so, you so you come back that way. Um, you wrote about uh, DEI and how DEI is starting to lose its way. The house of uh, cards, I think, is falling is how you characterized it. Why don't you start with that predicate and let's go and take a look at what is going on with DEI, not only in academia, but in in the the rest of the world as well. Well, as we understand the words diversity, equity, and inclusion, we expect a diversity of thought and ideas as well as a diversity of ethnicities and race. Uh, We expect equality under the law or at least fair treatment of individuals under the law would not treat people differently with respect to their immutable characteristics. And then with inclusion, we expect that people would be not excluded because of, again, their immutable characteristics. However, DEI does none of those things. DEI emphasizes identity politics and your adherence to a particular group based on your skin color or your country of origin or your ethnicity. It doesn't advocate for equality. It actually advocates that you should receive additional benefits based on what is either perceived or actual disadvantages, um, sometimes related to ethnicity. And then inclusion is, has resulted in actually excluding people, because if you are someone who is, um, say, uh, a, you know, of a Judeo-Christian faith or uh, who is in the majority, right, in terms of, uh, you know, skin color, uh, then you are excluded from these additional benefits. So DEI may have been at one point a attempt to carry out the intentions of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, but it has resulted really in the application of critical race theory and critical ideas. And I'm not talking about sort of deep thinking here. I'm talking about power structures and a focus on um, uh, disenfranchisement and, frankly, Marxism. I'm just going to use the word Marxism. That's basically what I this try, is. Yes. <laughs> sure. I try not to lead with that because people will will immediately say, oh, there's just another conservative saying that, you know, everything that they don't agree with is Marxist. But that's not true. I mean, it, when you if you look at what DEI offices or DEI departments are saying they want to accomplish, or if you look at their actions, you realize that it really is about um, consolidating power, right? It's about zero-sum games of who has power over another. And so that's what DEI offices are. They are the the political operatives of the critical race theory movement. It also seems to uh, divide people into different tribes, uh, hitting one tribe against another. Absolutely, and and that's a a part of the critical worldview, right? I mean, I think people are divided by, uh, you know, under Marxism, of course, it was class, right? right? But the Frankfurt School and the critical theorists of the 1920s and 1930s wanted to apply Marxism to culture. 
And so then they began dividing people along the lines of, you know, race and ethnicity, and that's what DEI, you know, also does. Now, it's been pretty prevalent in uh, colleges and universities around the country for the last few years. How did that come about? Well, if I had to, you know, give kind of a, a soft hypothesis, it would be that after Prop 209 in California in the 1990s that ruled, that was a proposition in California that said that universities would not, universities and any public employers would not use racial preferences in hiring or in college admissions, I believe that um, radical activists became uh, particularly concerned about, you know, advocating for racial preferences. And uh, while DEI offices did exist, usually with other names, prior to Prop 209, I think it accelerated, you know, after after that proposition passed. And um, I think it, it, you know, they became even more embedded in the college culture. And I think they did it under the auspices of saying, look, if you don't have a DEI department, why then you know, you're, who's going to protect against racial discrimination on campus, right? And, you know, of course, the, the answer is that, you know, the, the U.S. Department of Justice does so, as well as, you know, state uh, attorney state general and, sure. and others. Yeah. All right. So we've got uh, DEI or the, 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 I guess, the starting of DEI back to uh, California's proposition there. But uh, that doesn't explain then how it went every place other than California, because we see it all over. Were these just copycats, people saying, hey, this is a good idea, or this is a way to prevent us from having the same type of referendum? Yeah, so again, I mean, I think some of these existed even before Prop 209, but I think the emphasis on and the outward um, uh, commitment to racial preferences became even more pronounced among these departments. And, okay. you know, as the critical race theory movement began to gain momentum, because remember, critical race theory only dates back to, you know, maybe the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s. Critical legal theory was its predecessor, but, you know, that that only goes back to the 1970s. So, you know, we're really kind of talking about something that began to gain steam in the 19. 19- you know, 1990s into the 2000s, sort of picking up during the Obama administration, because you know, left of center politicians and and you know, lawmakers, you know, were trying to advance this worldview. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, it it did it did spread on purpose, I and mean, I think, but I think it was part and parcel of a movement to uh, uh, limit or eradicate colorblind thinking and meritocracy. And that is a long, those are long-standing goals of critical theory in general, but critical race theory in particular. Right. And how much of it has to do with um, I, uh, the economic impact on this particular philosophy? Um, you notice quite a bit of uh, financial resources for students who fit into different labels or programs that emphasize um, improvements in in. Uh, metrics for different racial classes or labels. Um, did Is it a chicken and an egg that the economic uh, the ideology started and the economic followed, or did the economic begin this process and the ideology follow? Well, I think that there has been a, a correct view after Brown versus Board of Education that we needed to provide access to children who are black, who are Hispanic, to the same sorts of options that their white peers may have had, right? I mean, I think that was, that, that's sort of the thinking underlying all of this. And um, it became, you know, it became from let's just desegregate to let's actually provide additional advantages or benefits to students so that we can, you know, sort of demonstrate that America is a wel- welcoming, you know, diverse society. And that began through the critical race theory movement to sort of manipulate the feelings of guilt that I think Americans carried over, um, you know, appropriately from, you know, the institution of slavery and the Jim Crow era. I mean, those are all things that no American should be proud of, right? And we, we should all be committed to saying, you know, we never want to return to that. However, when you manipulate those feelings that America did, was not living up to its principles, then you say the only way to... Um, make amends for this is to effectively switch 
the disadvantage so that now uh, people who had advantage before are now second-class citizens, and the people who were marginalized before now have uh, first-class citizenship. That's what's going on, right? And that's why you have additional scholarships, additional money for you know, various programs for individuals of minority ethnicity and, and things like that. I mean, look, there's, there is no question that America failed to live up to its original principles, or some Americans did, and, and certainly in, in you know, government policy through you know, the, the things that I've listed there. Um, however, it's, it's now being manipulated, right? And, and it's, we're getting to the point where there's calls for reparations, which are, I mean, it's a highly confusing, not to mention contentious, uh, solution that I'm not even, I'm not even sure we can call it a solution, right? Because how could you put a monetary figure on the, you know, the suffering and loss that, you know, um, individuals who are black? Uh, I want to know how much they're going to give Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and to suggest that reparations, you know, would somehow, I mean, do we do this every generation? I mean, how long do we do this for? I mean, I think... I think the better solution, the better answer, and I think the conversation we should be having is where are there still obstacles to success for individuals who are uh, of a minority ethnicity? And I would strongly argue that um, uh, district assignment, zip code assignment to public schools is one. Uh, I think that a school system that assigns children to schools based on where they live is an obstacle to the success of uh, of children, and you can see that through, you know, the the public schools in Chicago and L.A. and Philadelphia and New York City and Miami, right, that have failed to help students succeed for generations. And um, so now, a lot of places, uh, parents are given the choice of where they want their children it's to a go. And growing trend. There's a growing uh, um, um, enrollment in private schools now, Catholic schools, parochial schools. Charter schools. Yes. Yeah, there, there absolutely is, and I think that that is sort of the future of the education landscape in the United States. Uh, it's been very exciting to see state lawmakers not just create new private learning options, but to make those eligible to every child in a state. I mean, that's a we saw this in Iowa, Oklahoma, Utah, North Carolina, Ohio. Um, Florida. Just to name a few. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, Florida just did it recently. Arizona did it two years ago. West Virginia did it a few years ago. You know, so you know this is this is a, a really remarkable change here, and um, you know we're still facing teacher unions who try to interfere with these with these options. There's a lawsuit in South Carolina right now that has the backing of the local you know teacher union representatives in that state. Um, you know, there. Are, so so we will. You know, we will still see obstacles or uh, objections from, uh, you know, the the entrenched interest groups. But uh, but yeah, this is this is an exciting change. Now, uh, to to be you know to be fair, I mean, we have to be honest about what the sort of numbers we're looking at. I mean, there are 50 million kids who are school aged in the U.S. thereabouts, right? About um, you know, we've got 10 million kids in private schools thereabouts. We've got 49 million in traditional public schools. Um, the, the homeschool population is, you know, still growing. I think it's a fair estimate to say about 5 million. So you're st- we're still looking at, you know, upwards of 40-plus million kids who are in assigned public sc- or who are in public schools that we want to make sure have the option to go somewhere else if that school's failing them. So we've got have work to do, but I think um, we're moving in the right direction. Okay. All right, now how did this get spread into uh – uh, the corporate setting. I mean, we see this now. It seems like every major corporation has a DEI office. We've got uh, even in our bar association here, they're looking at you know DEI um, uh, officers and and assisting DEI officers in uh, in different law firms. Uh, how did this jump from the academy to uh, the corporate world? You know, one of the things that I write about in my book, uh, Splintered Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth, is that the DEI sector is an $8 billion a year industry, and then that's um, you, you know, a pretty sizable number on the, on the corporate side. Uh, I think its diversity training programs have, have long been a part of the corporate world. I, I would say that now we are increasingly reading that um, on earnings calls that businesses are hosting these days, they are uh, less and less likely to bring up DEI 
um, on these calls. I think more and more businesses are starting to fear, and appropriately so, that DEI programs may violate civil rights and and the Constitution. Uh, That's what the Students for Fair Admissions Supreme Court case a couple of months ago, you know, heavily hinted at, um, you know, that uh, these DEI functions that advance racial preferences, you know, may may in fact violate federal law. So I think I think corporations are starting to back away from this. But it, it is that's a huge uh, it's a huge industry. Interesting that you bring up the American Bar Association because they've actually been at the center of uh, some in, some hearings by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights over the last 20 years. They actually tried to change their um, operating policies to sort of integrate racial preferences into um, their uh, accreditation uh, processes. So the, the ABA is, is actually right there at the, at the middle of this advancing racial preferences effort here. So I think we should be keeping a keen eye on what the, the Bar Association is trying to do. Yeah. Uh, how much has this um, affected what we now call as cancel culture? I think it's a... Um, it is a result of critical thinking. I mean, when you have critical theory advancing the idea that some people deserve more rights than others, and I'm not, I'm not making that up. I mean, those are the no. That's exactly what they're saying. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's Herbert Marcuse's words from you know he was a critical theorist in the '60s. Happened to be the mentor to Angela Davis, who of course Columbia University wasn't he? Uh, I, I know that the Frank most of the Frankfurt Frankfurt School, School went there. Landed at Columbia. I'm not sure where Marcuse, Marcuse was. He may have gone to Berkeley, but I'm not certain. Yeah. Uh, but you know, regardless, uh, you know, Angela Davis was one of his students. She, of course, was uh, you know uh, ran for the Communist Party nomination for for president, among other things, um, involved in a you know bombing and of a murder of a judge, things like that. Um, so anyway, so Marcuse was one that said more people deserve rights. Some people deserve more rights than others, and um, the result of that is when you um, say, say, or do something that doesn't conform to the prevailing orthodoxy around critical, you know, the, the power structures, then you are canceled. And speech is no longer a freedom; it's no longer a right. Like you don't have a right to speak or to your ideas. You you cannot say things that would offend someone else's uh, feelings of you know being a part of an identity group. And uh, then it becomes that that's how if you've heard the phrase words or violence, that's that's where that kind of comes from. Right. Right. If you say something that doesn't doesn't conform, then you are being violent and then you get canceled. Right. You are no longer allowed to participate in society, which is, again, this is one of the things that that conflicts with the whole equity. Right. idea. One of the things you mentioned in uh, in the article that I have in front of me that you just published a couple of weeks ago. Uh, was involving college campuses where they now have these bias, uh, bias response teams that become uh, investigator, uh, judge, and jury uh, when somebody's accused of something. Want to yeah. explain what's going on there with those? Yeah, what an Orwellian name, bias response team. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the bias response teams claims that. Um, the only way you know it's bias is by your own feelings. So someone can just, their own feelings can feel like they heard or read something that they think was biased. They can report that, usually anonymously, to this uh, bias response team made up of, by the way, often DEI staff or uh, you know part of the DEI office. And then there'll be an investigation into the person that said or did or the poster or the group that you know did this thing. And it can result in consequences. And um, that, you know, that obviously will make it so students self-censor. They don't want to talk, right, if they're afraid that what they say is going to come back to haunt them. Um, Fortunately, there are terrific advocacy groups out there, Speech First being one, uh, who are representing students and fighting against these bias response teams. In places like the University of Michigan, for example, they actually won, and Michigan agreed to um, close its bias response team. Um, they've, they've had victories in a couple of other you know, uh, yeah, high-profile universities. You pointed that out, that there, uh, one of the things that's folding this house of cards on DEI is the response by judges. Yeah, and and the um, some of the the rulings against these bias response teams. I mean, they've called they've said they chill speech 
they said they are, you know, clearly um, um, re- you know, limiting the amount of, of expression that can happen on campuses. And that's been really strong. It's been good to see that from the uh, from litigation, from, from the judicial, uh, you know, branch, because we don't always get that same pushback, right, from the executive branch, depending on who's in power. So it's good that, that we've seen, you know, the court system uh, call these bias response teams what they are, and that's censorship. And uh, state legislators are starting to look at this. Uh, Gina, you had uh, what the Iowa Board of Regents. Right, the done. Iowa State Board of Regents uh, did an extensive review of the state universities and um, found some disturbing things in their very long report. But in their conclusions, there were 10 points, I think, 10 or 12 points. And most all of them centered around eliminating any of these DEI operations on campus um, and positions on campus unless there's some sort of um, financial uh, accreditation Accreditation. requirements. Yeah. Um, So, uh, Jonathan, how about uh, public support? Do you see, uh, anecdotally, I see a lot of people being fed up with this. You know, they might have put a Black Lives Matter sign in their front yard when that movement began, and now their eyes have been made wide open, if nothing else, to see that the manipulation of this DEI um, philosophy. I think it's going to be a constant process of reminding people of the problems caused by DEI programs. Um, I think that this is, it's going to be a long process of educating people about how these programs uh, are an affront to civil rights. Um, I think letting people, I think people who have undergone DEI trainings um, surveys have found that they are um, uh, they do they do not get uh, high marks uh, the DEI uh, training programs. In fact, DEI training finds that people either don't change their opinions or become more tolerant, or they um, actually become resentful of having to have undergone this training. Um, but it, you know, it's gonna it will take some time. Uh, I think for people to understand that we are not those who oppose DEI, we're not opposed to civil rights. We're actually trying to protect civil rights. Exactly. And we need to make the point here that DEI does not advance um, civil rights. We are pretty much running out of time here, unfortunately, Jonathan. Because we could continue this conversation for quite some time, I think. But there's two things I want you to to tell us about again. One, you mentioned your book. What was the name of the book again? Yes, it's called Splintered, Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth. And uh, where can people find that? Uh, you can get it uh, at most booksellers, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and, uh, and others. Very good. And the second thing I, I, we need to know is uh, you are with the Heritage Foundation, so how do, we find, how do we find you at the Heritage Foundation and follow your writings and things like that? Yeah, thank you. At uh, heritage.org, uh, all of our research is available there. And then you can follow me on social media at jm underscore butcher. Very good. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today, Jonathan. It was certainly a, an informative conversation, and we recommend your book now. Hopefully you get a few more sales <laughs> out of the interview, uh, but especially following what you're writing on the Heritage Foundation, we find Uh, that uh, website to be very helpful. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for for joining us. And uh, Gina and I will be right back after these messages. Then we're back. We have uh, Jacob Reed, who is a legal counsel for the Center for Christian Ministries at the Alliance Defending Freedom with us to talk about a very disturbing case out of Vermont. Uh, so, uh, Jake, uh, welcome to our program. I don't think we've had you on before. Uh, and anytime we have a first-time guest, we always try and be very nice to you so that you come back. You know, we don't we don't want the word to get out that we're bad to guests. So. No, absolutely. Thanks uh, for having me on, guys. Welcome. You. Uh, you're certainly welcome. Let's talk about this uh, problem with uh, Vermont. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, ADF, represent a Christian school uh, in Vermont, Mid-Vermont Christian School. Uh, and that school's been around for, you know, almost 30 years. Actually, I think over 30 years doing what it does, you know. Uh, teaching kids in line with the gospel and, and seeking to advance the gospel and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, what happened here is it's kind of twofold. So the state of Vermont has a town tuitioning program, 
which basically says that if you live in a, a rural part of the state within a school district that does not have a that does not operate a public high school, then that school district's responsibility then is to pay tuition for those students to attend a uh, either another public school or a private school of that student's choice or that family's choice. Um, so here, there's a, a, a family that attends Mid Vermont Christian School who lives in in an area that does not have a public high school. So they wanted to, you know, take advantage of the town tuitioning program and have that school district pay funds at Mid Vermont Christian so that those students could attend school there. Um, however, the state uh, has essentially forbid Mid Vermont Christian for, from participating in that program. Um, because of its religious beliefs and practices and how it operates at school. So that's problem one. Problem two is similar, but a little bit different, and it has to do with school athletics. Uh, so Mid-Vermont Christian School has school athletics and has participated for almost 30 years in the state's sponsored league, which is the Vermont Principals Association. However, this past February, uh, their girls' basketball team was set to play against a team within the girls' basketball tournament, and that other team had a biological male on the team. And because of the school's religious beliefs about sex and gender and, you know, the fact that God creates male and female and there's unique differences between the two, it declined uh, respectfully to forcing its girls to have to play that, that biological male. And in response, it was booted from the association and now can no longer participate in any athletics or activities within the state. So we so have in other schools. words, if your religious beliefs don't comply with the state's idea of what they should be, you're just out in your ear. That, that, that's right. Vermont has essentially, you know, adopted their own beliefs about gender and sex, um, and they are forcing private religious schools, such as Mid-Vermont Christian, to adopt that same belief if you want to participate in town tuitioning and receive public funds. And if you want to participate in uh, high school and middle school athletics, uh, which is, you know, quite absurd that the state is saying agree with us or you're essentially blacklisted from both public funds and high school athletics. Now, this is not just happening in Vermont. We see it, I think, um, throughout the nation. And maybe you can bring us up to date with some of the other problems that you've seen around the country and where they're coming from, or are they isolated in a particular geographic area, or they just anywhere? A absolutely. So let's, let's, let's cut it in two here. Let's talk about the, the twisting angle, the public okay. funds first. Um, you know, this, this is not the, the first time around for Vermont. Vermont is continuing to discriminate against Christian schools. What Vermont had done in the past was with the, within the same town switching program said that religious schools could not participate full stop. That was the end of it because they were religious. Um, ADF actually filed a couple of lawsuits a few years ago uh, that actually resulted in good results where the Second Circuit Court of Appeals said that Vermont's uh, policy of discriminating against religious schools by prohibiting them from participating in the program, that was unconstitutional. Um, so Vermont has already been schooled, if you will, by by the federal courts. Yet now, instead of just <clears throat> telling religious schools they can't participate off the bat, they say, oh, religious schools, you can, quote, unquote, participate, but you have to adopt these certain policies and change your internal practices if you want to. And that's something that Mid-Vermont Christian is not willing to do. Um, and we've also seen this in Maine. Maine has a similar program where public schools don't operate a high school the state is supposed to pay tuition for those students to attend private schools. Right, and that went uh, to the Supreme Court, didn't it? That's right, that's right. So this, this decision came out just last year. It was Carson v. Macon. The Supreme Court said, so, so let me back up a little bit, Maine did the same thing, saying if you're a religious school, we're not going to pay you tuition money because you're religious and you want to teach your students religious things. The Supreme Court said that's unconstitutional. Religious schools obviously teach their students religious things, or else what's the point in being religious? Um, and, and so by depriving religious schools from participating in the tuition program, that violated the schools and the parents who went there, their 
uh, their free exercise rights under the First Amendment. So this is not anything new. We've seen it. In fact, the Supreme Court three times over the last six years has issued decisions that said when when the state operates a public benefit program, whether it be playground grants, as was the case in the case, yep, or whether it's uh, um, tax credits for uh, school um, scholarships, as was the case in Montana, that's Espinosa case, or Carson v. Macon, as I just mentioned. The Supreme Court said when, when the state operates a public benefits program, it has to allow religious schools and entities participate. It can't exclude them because they're religious or because they do religious things. So nothing new here, and that's what's happening in Vermont. Well, well what, and, why doesn't why doesn't the people, or why don't the people in Vermont understand what the Supreme Court has said? Uh, what kind of games are they trying to play? <laughs> well, that's that's a great question, one I wish I knew the answer to, and, and I don't. I All we can tell is that there seems to be, um, from state officials, whether it's through the Agency of Education or the Vermont Principals Association, um, there seems to be some disdain uh, for for Mid Vermont Christian and other religious schools, the beliefs they profess and what they want to, how they want to operate their schools, um, and so they again essentially blacklisted them from town tuitioning and from uh, athletics, uh, and that's something that certainly is not permissible by the Constitution. Now, I, I'm assuming on that point, I'm assuming that ADF has before we sued the State Department of Education in Vermont, you sent a letter and explained, I mean, literally laid out the facts in the case. They just disregarded that, or how did they respond? Uh, you're, you're exactly right. So, again, let me back up a little bit. What the school is asking, or I'm sorry, what the state is asking in Vermont Christian to do <clears throat> is agree that it won't um, operate its school in line with its religious beliefs. So what does that mean? Well, the school, again, believes men are men and, bo- and girls are girls, so it separates restrooms along with that belief. It separates its sports teams based on that belief. It, of course, uses a dress code, pronouns, so on and so forth. And the state says, if you want to receive town tuitioning money, you have to agree not to do those things. Of course, the school can't do that. It's a Christian school, and it, the whole reason it exists is right to inculcate its Christian values and its students. And, and the school said that to the state. It laid it out, put it on paper, and essentially asked for an exemption from these rules, from these non-discrimination rules. And the state declined to grant an exemption and then reduced Mid-Vermont's status from an approved independent school, which meant it could receive money, and, and reduced that status to what's called a recognized independent school, which means the school cannot receive money. Um, so it's not like this was sprung on the state. It knew well in advance what the school was asking for, yet declined to accommodate those religious beliefs. Now, you filed suit? That's right. Yep. Okay. Filed suit and then, uh, about 10 days ago. And then uh, who is it that's defending the suit? Is it the attorney general? Or... Uh, well, that's to be determined. Um, okay. you know, we have to serve the state and go through the procedural Rickham rules, but uh, yes, it, it most likely will be the attorney general's office, at least defending uh, the state agency of education and board of education. Okay. Now, I sh- there's also there's some local school districts that are named defendants um, because they're the ones who actually uh, recouped the tuition payments, if you will. Um, so, you know, we'll see we'll see uh, who they retain. Mm-hmm. So, the suit um, requires some kind of financial compensation when you do win. Uh, we have requested damages. That's correct. All right. So, Sorry. Uh, I'm not a lawyer on this <laughs> on this show. I'm not the lawyer, so I don't know all the legal language. But that's why she I, asked yeah, the best right. question. I appreciate you clarifying yeah. damages. That's yep. the word I was looking for. That's right. Okay. Thank you. All right. And so then the uh, the sports team is prohibited from engaging in intercollegiate uh, or uh, or um, I guess in the, the sports leagues, whatever they have there. Uh, because it right. will not play against uh, a, a female team that has male members. That's right. That's right. The, the school, you know, because it believes, again, boys are boys and girls are girls, it's not going to do anything that facilitates the opposing view. Okay. And so, mind you, let's go back to February. This was girls basketball. And I should also note that the 
that's a sports league, the Vermont Principals Association, their own policy says that boys shall not be permitted to compete in girls' athletics. There's a policy that says that. So this was not as though the school pulled this out of thin air. The Vermont Principals Association own policy said that. And so when it was asked to compete against a biological male within girls' basketball, that's important because, again, the school's position is it's not going to facilitate something that, that gives the appearance that boys can be girls or vice versa. That's because, obviously, it doesn't believe that. So it, it, it forfeited that game. So it, it took the loss. Mind you, this was the state tournament. And, and, and rather than that being enough punishment for the school – the league came back and expelled the school from all sports. So not just girls basketball, the league, the school can no longer participate in anything, baseball, track, volleyball, nothing. It's been expelled. And so it's been forced to travel um, out of state to play other Christian schools, um, which of course there's time and expense with that. And well, it cuts down on scholarship opportunities too. That's right. That's right. So there's, there's, you know, we could go through a list of the detriments that that has caused the school because of of, of declining to uh, facilitate something it doesn't believe. Wow. Okay. So, um, how much of this is going on around the country? Well, as as we kind of talked about the the public benefits, the tuitioning angle, that's nothing new. That's been going on, continues to happen, as we see here in Vermont. Um, with the sports angle, it's kind of something new. Now, you know, biological males wanting to play in girls' sports, that's not new. We see that on the news all the time. But what is new and what I see the trend the, the trend kind of going in this direction is, you know, high school sports leagues or state-sponsored sports leagues now telling Christian schools that they have to do certain things if they want to continue to participate. Um, that's what happened here in Vermont, and I can see the trend moving in that direction across the state. Um, as far as I know, this is the first sort of lawsuit where you have a private Christian school saying, we don't want to do that. We don't want to facilitate falsities. Um, But certainly, I I believe there will be more to come. Well, very good on you to um, begin that process, because I think it's necessary. we got to have some precedent for for our students. That's right. And ADF does a good job with these cases. So uh, how can people follow these cases, and what is your website, and and if people uh, need more information or have their own problem that they want to discuss with ADF, how do they get a hold of you? Absolutely, adflegal.org. You can go there. You can track all of our all of our cases, including this at Mid Vermont Christian School. Um, you can also track our other cases, our women's sports cases, so on and so forth. And we also have a, a, a link there on our website where, if you're in need of legal assistance, you can click that. Uh, and submit a form, which will shoot it over to us. And if you have an abundance of funds left over, there's a link there someplace where you can donate uh, to ADF, <laughs> and it's a good place to put your money because it's what they're doing. All these things, we've mentioned this before in the program, all these things cost money, and somebody's right. got to pay for it, and uh, your clients right. are not because ADF right. does what you're doing pro bono. It's all pro bono. All but, free. Uh, that's right. Yeah, but it has to come from the generosity of others, and that's where you can help out if you would. Absolutely. All right. Jake, thank you for joining us today. We certainly appreciate it. We know you've got another interview or something coming up, and we've got to let you go for that. But we certainly appreciate your time, and we will follow up with this and see how it, it plays out in the future here. Okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Thank Jacob you. Reed, who is a legal counsel for the Center for Christian Ministries at the Alliance Defending Freedom. And Gene and I will be right back after these messages. You're listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. And we're back. You're still listening to Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio. And uh, we had uh, today, uh, again, another informative, I want to try and use a different word rather than just interesting all the time, an informative show about some of the things that are going on, especially with DEI and this terrible case in Vermont. I can't imagine that this case in Vermont could go very far, especially given the recent Supreme Court ruling um, in favor of the school in Maine. Apparently, the educators in Vermont can't read uh, what the Supreme Court has written. 
because if they did, they wouldn't have gotten themselves <laughs> I into. I, th- I think we reported even that after even after the Supreme Court ruling, Maine came in at a different angle, trying to do exactly the, do same, the same thing, thing that thing. the courts told them here's you the cannot pro- do. Here's the problem for Vermont. You're in the United States of America. Here's the problem for Vermont. They're going to have to pay legal fees oh, yeah. to the ADF, and this. Not only that, but damages to the families families and the students and all this. This could cost them a lot of money. And I will tell you, the legal fees that they will be entitled to will be enormous. Now, do you know what the saddest part about that is that this the the, uh, Department of Education that they're suing does does not care. It's not their money. There's no punishment or consequences for the individuals who made these decisions. The taxpayers are ultimate. In fact, the. The people suing are tax are paying for them to be sued, so yeah. it's just a, a a horrible situation, I think. But that's what happens yeah. in the big city, I guess. Um, well, a couple can... of things in the international scene that you uh, brought up. One was uh, Cardinal Burke. Yes, we were talking about um, the actions against Cardinal Burke. Although I have to tell you. This seems like a PR trick because Cardinal Burke's office wasn't, from news reports, he says he wasn't notified yet by the uh, Vatican that his housing in Rome has been taken away from him. Yeah, he had uh, free housing there, I guess. Yeah, it goes. given to him by, I think, Bene- Pope Benedict had, had opened up that office right. to him. And, uh, um, and he's such a, um, from what I know and understand of him, very humble. This isn't really a punishment, I wouldn't think, to him or he wouldn't see it that way from what I know of him. Uh, and the fact that it's in the press before he's even notified m- makes me very suspect about th- what the Vatican is actually up to. Yeah, yeah it, it is a shame. But Especially we'll see. on the tales of, <laughs> of uh, Bishop, Bishop Strickland's Strickland. yeah. uh, announcement yeah. um, by the... Bishop Strickland, if he's smart, will find uh, a little congregation someplace, a group of nuns or something that he can minister to and sit down and write a book. Yeah, well, that and, would be a good book. And uh, it will be a best He's a good and holy man, he for sure. He is. So Both he, of them. If he we turns pray for his, them. If he turns his attention to doing that, I think he will benefit a lot of people. Speaking of good and holy men, we lost a good one this week. Monsignor Frank Chido. Uh, I, in Des Moines. I was fortunate enough to be with him part of the day just before he died. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. I, I had been stopping in to see him once a week with the communion, and I wasn't the only one, of course. But his family was there, and and it was it was sad because you knew the the end was coming, and so uh, Monday we have his funeral, and uh, it's going to be ironic for me because I always thought that the Chido would be presiding at my funeral someday, and I know he meant a lot to me when the arrows were flying in my direction, it was uh, uh, Monsignor Chido that stepped in and defended me, and when uh, there were those that wanted to marginalize me. It was Monsignor Chido that offered me a spot with the Latin Mass. He was your St. advocate, Ed, yes. Right? And, uh, yeah, he was a good advocate for me. And I served at the Latin Mass, doing the Latin Mass over at uh, uh, St. Anthony's until I had my stroke two years ago, and then I couldn't get over there all the time. So, But picked it back up when it moved to when Saints. Father Chido got right. sick, and we, and we got adopted it, it at our parish, St. Right. Augustine. Right. So uh, uh, Monsignor Chido meant a lot to me, and he certainly helped me out quite a bit. And when I had my stroke, speaking of my stroke, he was one of the first people that came up to see me in the hospital. He and yeah, Well, he served his community. He did. I, I mean, he, all of his communities. I think, he, wasn't he at St. John's for a while? He was all over, yes. All over yes. central was, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and he was certainly very well appreciated and he was a very dynamic preacher. Yes. And very, very yes. good. And you're right. He, he served his people very well. And uh, we will miss him. So keep uh, Father or Monsignor uh, Chido Frank in your Chido. prayers. Yes. Yeah, pray for him. Yes, because he's... Rest he, in peace. Yes, yes. Yeah, all right. And do we have a couple minutes? Yeah, go ahead. I'd love to mention something real quick. I do yeah. follow... We've had Kyle Serafin. He's a um, FBI suspended, sure. a suspended FBI whistleblower. On our program a number of times, our listeners may remember that Kyle is the one who um, notified Congress about uh, the FBI investigating traditional Catholics, speaking of the Latin Mass. And he's been on twice. Yes, we've had him on the show, right, and to talk about these things. And uh, I was listening to his show yesterday, and he was interviewing a couple of whistleblowers from, I want to say, the Department of Homeland Security, 
who um, have identified uh, our government's child trafficking of the illegal immigrant children who unaccompanied over the border. Um, it, they were on the show because they were telling um, the listeners about uh, the uh, ruling that uh, administrative rule that uh, the department is in- invocating um, here, and they are hoping that they can get enough public comments to get this rule annihilated. Because if it takes effect, the child trafficking by our government will become even easier. So I just want to tell people to go to a website. Um, they've put in, I don't know, a hundred or so comments that you can just literally cut and paste and a link that you can put the comments in. They're hoping to get 50,000 to get this rule eliminated. Um, so the website is truth trench, T R U T H T R E N C H dot org slash defend the children. And you can cut and paste as many of them as you want. You can even, um, uh, enter them anonymously if you don't want to put in your name. So, um, again, that's truthtrench.org slash children. We will encourage our listeners to do that. I appreciate because we it. we know when uh, uh, one of those things, when uh, uh, they open a rule for comments, a lot of times, you know, the agency is going to do what it wants to do regardless of the comments. But when those rules are challenged in court, the court will look at those comments right. to see whether they were considered or really considered or not. So it's important to get those right. those comments. And yeah. if if you're interested in this topic at all, these two uh, whistleblowers that Kyle interviewed, uh, it's uh, on Rumble. Is the it's about an hour long. You will be mortified. I'm warning you ahead of time. But it's uh, Kyle Serafin, S E R A P H I N on Rumble, and it was yesterday's episode. Good. Or, Well, I shouldn't say that. It was on November 29th's episode. A good man and a devout Catholic. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. as many of these suspendables are. They're just yeah. wonderful um, people. And unfortunately, we are out of time, so let's uh, end with our Defender's Prayer. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him. We humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into hell, Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Amen. And that's it for this week. Don't forget our annual dinner this Friday on the, the December 8th. It's at the Embassy Suites downtown. Dr. David Anders of EWTN's Call to Communion will be our featured speaker. And you can get tickets by contacting us here at the studio at iowacatholicradio.com. That's it. We will see you next time. And until then, don't forget to go to church and take your kids. Our freedom of conscience and religion is being challenged by laws and regulations imposed by secular society. Faith on Trial with Defender of the Faith, Deacon Mike Mano. Faith on Trial on Iowa Catholic Radio, iowacatholicradio.com, and the Iowa Catholic Radio app. Support for Faith on Trial and Iowa Catholic Radio provided in part by Imogene Ingredients.